fifth chapter of Matthew. Last week I began the message with money isn't everything, but it sure beats what's in second place. And I think that we can start this morning's sermon with this, I've got problems, you've got problems, all God's children got problems. And I think that we could all agree with that statement. I don't think there's any person here who would not say that the thing that I want most in my life, I would really like to be rid of all my problems. Life contains many bitterness, much bitterness, disappointments. There are myriads of trials and difficulties that all of us have, and we have this yearning to be free from the shackles of all of our problems. What is the solution to our problems? I think all of you would expect me to say that God is the solution to our problems. And so I will say that. God is the solution to our problems. David said in Psalm chapter 55, verse 22, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and he shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. Notice there who he says has help with their problems. David says, He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. And so we come to the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus speaks to the multitudes who came to hear. But as he spoke to them, his words were only for the righteous. There weren't others that could receive these teachings, and certainly none that could live by the principles of God's kingdom other than those who are righteous. Now, the interesting thing when I say that the teachings here are for the righteous, is that that first beatitude that we spoke of last week was, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And that's not only the first beatitude, it is an absolute necessity that that be the starting place. The poor in spirit are those who realize their spiritual bankruptcy. They realize that they are beggarly poor spiritually. They have nothing at all that they can offer God, nothing to commend them to God. The only righteousness that they can claim is the righteousness that they have by faith as they have received Jesus Christ into their hearts and God, Jesus Christ, gives him, them, his righteousness. Now that brings us then to the second beatitude. The first one was the bankrupt beatitude and that's the realization of spiritual bankruptcy. And so we come to our text verse this morning in Matthew uh, chapter 5 and verse number 4. I'd like for us to stand, please, as we read God's Word. We're going to start with verse number 1, Matthew chapter 5, verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today, a very important word that's given to us here about mourning. Lord, help us to understand what Jesus really means by this, and may we apply what we hear today to our lives and learn what will truly make us happy. Blessed are they that mourn, and help us to understand the truth of that passage In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed. Uh, We discussed that word a little bit last week. The Beatitudes take their name from that saying, blessed. It's actually a Latin translation of a word that means a state of happiness. It means a state of bliss. 
But when Jesus talks about happiness in these Beatitudes, what he intends is a happiness that most of us are not very much acquainted with. Very quickly, without too much reading, we realize that Jesus has actually turned all of the world's values upside down. And the demands of the Beatitudes really don't seem to match the blessings. Everything's backwards. Can you be blessed by being poor in spirit? Can you be blessed by mourning? Well, Jesus says that as a child of God, you can, but it has to be mourning that comes in the right way and mourning over the right things. Now, we believe that happiness is achieved by avoiding all of our pain and suffering, get rid of our problems, get rid of all the hardships, and then that is what will make us happy. And so you don't think, then, that it's possible that you could be sad and to be happy at the same time. But Jesus turns that idea around. He spins it on its head, and he says, to to be happy, you must be sad. And so he says here, blessed are the poor in spirit. And then he follows that statement up immediately with this one, blessed are they that mourn. For the casual reader who is not really looking for the deeper meaning of what Jesus says and what his intent really is, they may be thinking, well, blessed are they that mourn because what they're doing, they're mourning over the fact that they are poor. I mean, being poor, such as thinking about bad economic times and mourning because you may have lost your job or mourning because, and it's so sad, that you had to sell the boat. Well, Jesus does indeed mean that they mourn over being poor, but what he means is that they mourn over their spiritual bankruptcy. And so what we could actually say here then, that what Jesus is talking about is a mourning for sin. Today we're going to develop that thought just a little bit further. We want to see what Jesus truly means when he talks about mourning. And then what does it mean to be comforted? Now let me start with this today. First of all is examples of mourning. There are legitimate reasons for us to mourn. In 1998, my father passed away. And I've never had a truer friend or anyone who had as much impact on my life as my father. He's been gone for almost 11 years now, and there's hardly a day that goes by that I don't think about him. And one of the reasons that I do is because nearly every day, I'm either working on a sermon, writing a sermon, studying for another sermon, and I think about him a lot of times because I'm always wondering, what would my father have said about this passage? What what is his interpretation? And I mourned when my father passed away. He meant a lot to me, and well, I should have, just as you mourn over when a a loved one dies. That's legitimate mourning. In the Old Testament, Abraham mourned when his wife Sarah died. Jacob mourned when Rachel died. And he also mourned when he thought that his son, his beloved son Joseph, had been torn apart by wild animals. Jeremiah mourned. Uh, Jeremiah mourned because Israel would not turn back to God. And he was called the weeping prophet. And there's even a book in the Bible that's called Lamentations that was written by Jeremiah. And what that word means is a cry of sorrow and of grief. And that's a type of mourning. When the Apostle Paul had to leave Ephesus, he mourned with the Ephesian elders because he was on his way to Jerusalem and he knew that this was the last time that he would ever see them. Those are legitimate reasons for mourning. But that's not what Jesus is talking about in this passage. He says, blessed are they that mourn. And he doesn't mean those that mourn for those kinds of reasons. 
Now, there are nine different words that are translated in the Bible as the word sorrow or mourning. And in the Scriptures, this one that we read in this passage is the one that carries with it the deepest grief, the most intense grief. This is the type of mourning that's really soul-splitting, the one that's really gut-wrenching, that's really uh, heart-gripping. This is the very worst type of mourning at all. Do you understand what Jesus means here? What he means when he talks about mourning here is that it's the one who realizes what a great sinner that he is. This is the mourning that Jesus is expressing here, a mourning for our sin. You see, the Beatitudes have a natural progression to them. They aren't thrown together in a haphazard manner. And so when a person realizes that first Beatitude, that he's spiritually bankrupt, when he understands that he has nothing that he can offer God, and like the song says, Rock of Ages, in my hand no price I bring, when he comes to that place that he realizes what a sinner he is, then he begins to mourn about that sin. And Jesus says, when you have come to that place, when you realize what your sins are and what they've done to you, and you begin to mourn over your sin, that's when you'll be blessed. Now, we have some examples in Scripture of this type of mourning. First one that we can look at is David. David is a good example for many of the Beatitudes that we study, but David mourned because of his sin. David is really a case study in sorrow. If you look at his life, there was a lot of sorrow in his life. He was sorrowful because of rejection. Absalom, his son, tried to take his kingdom away from him in a failed coup. There was sorrow because there was an incestuous rape that took place in his family. Amnon, one of David's sons, raped his half-sister Tamar. And because of that rape, Absalom killed Amnon. And so there was murder in David's family as well. We know the story of sorrow in David's life because the first baby that he had with Bathsheba died. But of all of the sorrows that David experienced, there was no sorrow as great as what David had over his personal sin. David was a man with a very contrite heart, and he realized when he sinned, and he understood how horrible the offenses that he had made against God. David could have spent his whole life in depression, but he didn't. What he did was he realized his sin, he confessed that sin, and it was when he began to mourn over that sin that he really found the happiness of his life. The world tells us to cover up our sins, hide our problems, ignore them all, smile through it all, and act as if nothing is wrong, but Jesus gives the exact opposite advice. His demand is that we confess our sins and that we mourn over them. We realize the seriousness of our sins because it's only when you have received cleansing from your sins that you can be truly happy. And you see how that's really the opposite of much of the preaching that we hear today? I mean, this is not what the church today tells us. Today, uh, the fastest growing churches are the ones where the preacher can be a better comedian than he is a preacher. It's the jokes that are remembered the jokes that are told during the service are not really the exposition of Scripture that people go out rejoicing because they've heard the Word of God and heard the Word of God explained. And so while all the jokes are going on in the church, so does the sin. And so the popular TV evangelist pokes fun at it. He says, people are so depressed today. Uh, people are depressed about things. And so we don't want to do anything that, that helps them to be more depressed. We want to be positive. We don't want to preach about sin because I don't want people to feel bad about their sins. 
And true to their teaching, what you find, their services never have any weeping about sin. If there's no preaching about it, why would anybody be concerned about it? Why would anybody think about it? Why would you be concerned enough to weep about it if nobody ever says anything about it? And here is the wonderful thing about the teaching of Jesus that he tells us, really, if you want to get out of that depression, if you want to get out of that sorrow, then the thing to do and the problems in your life, the thing to do is to repent of your sins, be convicted of those sins as God convicts, and your joy will be obtained through the conviction of your sin. Now, who is the happiest person? Well, that's the person who was on his way to hell, Then the Holy Spirit convicted him of his sin. He repented of his sins. He received the forgiveness of that sin. And so who would be happier than a person who has been convicted and then repented and then received God's forgiveness? And so when sin is not preached about, when the preacher is afraid to confront the wickedness of sinners, just like Jesus did and John the Baptist did when they said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, when preachers will not preach about sin, then the obvious conclusion is how will they ever know about forgiveness? And so then, there's a fake happiness that they have. There's a happiness that fades away. There's a happiness that awakens to the realization when that person leaves this life and they wake up in eternity and they find out that there has been no forgiveness because there has been no repentance. And certainly that would leave a person sorrowing. So the gospel that's being preached by many preachers today, is really no gospel at all because what it does, it leaves people in their sins and on their way to hell. You might think today, well, pastor, that's really too hard. We don't want to hear about these kinds of things. We don't want to come to church to be depressed. We come to church to be happy and to feel good. And what you don't realize is this is Jesus' teaching. You're not going to be truly happy until you do mourn for that sin. You can't be sad and then become truly happy because you haven't had that everlasting forgiveness of sin unless you've repented of it. You recognize, you realize, and give that over to God. Well, then we have another example of this kind of mourning in Scripture, and that was with the Apostle Paul. And Paul mourned over his service and what sin had done to his service. And we look at Romans chapter 7, Paul writes this. He says, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into the captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. O wretched man that I am. That's Paul's mourning about what sin had done in his life and about what sin would do to his service. And what Paul is speaking here of is his life as a Christian. Even though there are many people who say, well, he's not really talking about the Christian life here, that Paul is explaining what he was before he came to Christ. He's talking about how things were different before he trusted Christ. And so he goes on to chapter 8, and there he talks about the triumphs of the Christian life. And and that's when uh, Paul is talking about being saved. It's not over there in chapter 7. Well, that's a wrong idea because in chapter 7, Paul is already a Christian there, and he's speaking about the struggle that he has with this old nature that's still in him. It would be there throughout his entire life. He could never be free from it until he dies. And so if you go to chapter 8 and you read that correctly, you'll actually see that. 
Here's what he says in in verses 22 and 23 in chapter 8. He says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And that not only they, but ourselves also, which had the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of the body. Now, do you see that? Here is Paul as a Christian in Romans chapter 8, groaning and travailing in pain. He's mourning because of sin. And he's mourning because he knows that sin will affect his fellowship with God. Paul knew that yielding to sin, sin prevents fellowship with Christ. And so as a saved man, he mourned, he travailed in pain. He was groaning because he's not yet free from his sin that's in his body. When do you ever see Christians doing that? When do you see Christians mourning because of sin that they have committed? When when do you ever hear a Christian say, well, I did this against God, I I sinned, I, I had this transgression, and now I'm sorrowful for it, I mourn because of it. And we don't see it very much anymore because Christians have become used to sin. We've sinned so much, we've done it so long, we've become hardened to it, and sin no longer affects us like it should. And there's one person who said it well, we have become used to the dark. We've been called into the glorious light of the gospel of Christ, but once again, because of our sin and the constant commission of sin, we become used to that sin now. And it's just like going into a darkened room. At first, you can't see too well when you go in, but the longer that you stay, the more your eyes become accustomed to it. And that's exactly what we've done We've dressed the wrong way, we have talked the wrong way, we've read the wrong things, we've watched the wrong things, and we've done it for so long that we've just become used to it. Jesus says, blessed are they that mourn. And here he's talking about sin. You see, when you're used to sin, you don't mourn because of it, you laugh because of it, you flirt with it. And so what what do we have? We have Christians that do very little, They're Christians that can stay away from church, miss the church services. And I promise you this, that if you miss church, you're you're, you're not missing because you're serving Christ out there. It doesn't happen that way. And so there's no mourning because of that sin. And so we ask then, where are the mourners in church today? I mean, our churches are not blessed, our country is not blessed, and our lives are not blessed. Because we really truly don't have real conviction over sin to the place that we mourn about it. We've forgotten what it is that we need to mourn about. Now, that leads me to a third example. And this one is a little bit different because this one is Jesus. And Jesus is one who mourned over sinners. Jesus had no sin of his own to mourn about, but he mourned for sinners. One day, he stood overlooking the city of Jerusalem, and he saw their rejection, he saw their sin, and he began to weep for them. And he says in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, Thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Jesus mourned for sinners. And there was really no one as uniquely qualified as Jesus to mourn for sinners. And you know why? Because Jesus is the only one who truly knows how God feels about sin. He's the only one that really understands that. He fully understands the consequences of sin. And that's because he's seen the eternal results of it. The Bible teaches that God is the creator of all things. So God also created hell. 
The devil didn't create hell. Christ created hell. God created hell in order to receive sinners. And so he knows exactly what hell is like. Jesus knows it all because he created it. And so when he stood there weeping and mourning over Jerusalem, he knew the destiny of those people. And so his tears were tears of the deepest sorrow. And we can't understand it in the way that Jesus did. He knew the depths of hell. We can't understand exactly what it is and what the rejection of Christ will truly bring for a person who doesn't know Christ. But Jesus knows, and because of that, he mourns about it. And that ought to tell us something. There is no place in the Bible that you'll ever find where Jesus laughed. Churches are having a good time. People are laughing and a service isn't good until the preacher's really told, a, you know, a, a, or given you a real belly laugh somewhere there in the sermon. Most people are not going to go hear a preacher who is just deadly serious. So the idea that we have is of a wise cracking Jesus. Jesus is a mover and a shaker. He loves you so much that he doesn't really care about your sin. You see, the thing that Jesus is most interested in, people think, is uh, he's not going to judge your lifestyle, but he's interested that you have equal rights. What Jesus is interested in is that all people are equal, put on the same footing, that all people are alike in that way. And so he doesn't really care about your lifestyle. He doesn't care if you're an adulterous person. He doesn't care if you're a homosexual. He doesn't care about abortion. You can do it all because he's really not concerned about anything but this, and that's loving you into heaven. Isaiah has a much different view of Jesus. He says that he is a man who is acquainted with sorrow and with grief. And that means that Jesus has such a deep concern about sin that he doesn't crack a smile about sin. He doesn't joke about it. He doesn't joke about divorce. He doesn't joke about infidelity. He's not jovial when it comes to subjects like drugs and alcohol. He weeps over it. He mourns over it. And here we are sitting in church and people are waiting for the next funny story that the preacher is going to tell. Now, the apostle James wrote this, Draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. You know what that is? That's conviction of sin. It's time for us to stop laughing about sin. It's time for us to get serious about it and begin to mourn because of our sin. Now is the time to weep for sin and to weep for sinners. And Jesus knew about that. Jesus knew what to expect. He knew that hell was waiting for the sinner. Hell is gaping wide open for the person who rejects Christ. And here's a question for all of us. Do we really understand what's coming? Do we know? Do we see what's coming? Your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, your brothers, your sisters, your friends, your co-workers, the Bible teaches that they're going to hell without Jesus Christ. And it's time to start mourning over some of that. Mourn because of sin and mourn because of sinners. Now, friends, this is very serious business that we do here. We must be sad in order to be happy. That's what Jesus says. We mourn for sinners because it's only when they have been saved by Jesus Christ, received the gospel of grace, that their joy will come because they have received forgiveness of their sins. So the mourning over that, it must come first before we can be comforted, before we can be blessed. Now, these are examples of what Jesus means. He, he's not talking about mourning because the stock market lost 20% of its value. 
We don't sorrow over that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are those who know what sin has done to them. And they mourn because it, because of it. They've offended a holy God. Now quickly let me move on to the second part of this. And that's the excuses from mourning. See, the world's idea is that sadness cannot possibly be an ingredient for happiness. It sounds convoluted. It's all mixed up. And so I have to excuse myself from sadness. And so people begin to offer their excuses. What kind of excuses do people use? Well, the first one is, I can do worse. Here's my excuse. I can do worse. I mean, I'm really not so bad after all. There are a lot of worse things that I could be doing. You see that person over there and you see what they do? I've never done that. So I, I, I'm not really so bad. They're worse than I am. And so they begin to compare themselves to others. I, I don't mourn for my sin. I'm just happy that I'm not doing worse. Now here's what Paul says about this in 2 Corinthians. For we dare not make ourselves of the number or compare ourselves with some that commend themselves. But they measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves are not wise. Why are you comparing yourself to someone else? Well, this Sermon on the Mount is not about the world standards. It's not about how they live. This is a sermon about Christ's kingdom. It's a sermon about his standard. And so the comparison is not you to me and me to you. The comparison here is me to Christ and you to Christ. What everybody else does doesn't make any difference. You stand before God. You answer to him. You don't answer for what somebody else does. You don't compare yourself to other people. Now, one sin, one offense is against a holy God, and Christ died for that sin. Sin is what caused those nails to be driven into his hands and his feet. And so when you have that lust in your heart because of something that you've seen, some pornography, that puts a nail in Christ's body. The affair that you have at work and the little flirtations that you have, that drives nails into his hands and his feet. The dirty stories that you tell and that you listen to, that little reefer that you want to smoke, that drives nails into the hands and feet of Jesus. It was sin that nailed him to the cross. So what are you doing? What are you doing when you say, I'm not so bad, I could be worse? Those are the kinds of excuses that keep people from sorrowing and mourning and weeping because of their sin. But then there's another excuse that people use, and this one is, I can't do better. I just can't help myself. I have to do this. And you know, that's an excuse that limits God. That's an excuse that says that God is not big enough to help me. God cannot conquer my sins. And in effect, what that is is actually a rejection of God's grace. Jesus spoke directly to Paul, and he said, my grace is sufficient for you. And you're saying, no, 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 Jesus, your grace is not sufficient. I can't help myself. I, I can't do better. And so here's your problem. You'll not mourn for sin when you're standing outside of God's grace. Despair is sin. Depression is sin. Anxiety is sin, because all of that says you have rejected God's help. Uh, there's no Christian who really understands his helplessness to the degree that he throws everything upon Christ. There's no Christian who does that who's going to be anxious and worried because he knows God takes care of that. God always brings relief. And so you see, when you're worried about the economy and you stay up late at night, you can't sleep because you're worried about things in your life, then what you've done, you've forgotten your helper. 
You're anxious because you've come to the place where you've started to rely on yourself to solve your problems rather than relying upon God. It's a rejection of God's grace to find yourself in that state. So you aren't free any longer. You're shackled, and that's what causes people to fall into this depression over the economy and such things. Now, I promise you that if you'll be saddened for your sin rather than saddened about your suffering, then Christ can turn sorrows into joy. Now, go back to your own salvation. What is the most helpless position that you've ever been in? Wouldn't that be when you were lost? You remember what I said last week? I can't think of anything that's worse for a person than a person would die and go to hell. There is nothing that comes within a billion miles of being as bad as someone dying and go to hell. Well, if you've had sorrow over your sin at some point so that you ask Christ to, to save you, that you've thrown yourself upon the mercy of God and he saved you from this place called hell, why would he not also take care of all lesser problems? And everything is lesser than hell. Romans 8.32, Paul says, He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? I can't do better is not an excuse. But then there's a third excuse that some people use, and that is, I'll wait a little longer. I won't be too concerned about my sins right now. I'll just deal with this thing later. And you know what that's like? It's like being diagnosed with cancer. It's like saying, well, cancer's not really all that bad. It's not really all that bad. When it gets a little bit worse, that's when I'll begin to deal with it. I don't know of anybody in their right mind who deals with cancer that way because you know that the earlier that you find out about it and the earlier that you treat it, the better the chance of your survival. And the very same thing is true with sin. The earlier that you confess your sins, the earlier that you repent and you get right with God, the better your chance of survival. And what I mean is that sin is a very fast-moving thing. When it begins to infect your mind, the longer that you stay in sin, the less concerned that you become about it. Barney Fife used to say, nip it in the bud. And that's what you have to do with sin. When you transgress God's law, friend, you have to get into the sorrow mode. You have to get into mourning mode. Because you always have to keep it in your mind that sin is a killer. And you're never going to be too happy about it when you've got it in you. Can you imagine a person smiling and coming home from the doctor and saying, Hey, guess what? I've got cancer. You don't see that. You see somberness. You see sullenness. When cancer is conquered, that's when you see joy in a person. You see, sin is is the same. You've got to get sorrowful over it. You have to deal with it now because the smile will only come when you have received God's forgiveness. Now, thirdly this morning, we don't want to forget the last part of this verse, and that's the encouragement from mourning. There are examples, there are excuses, but there's also encouragement. The last part of the verse, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. The encouragement is the comfort. You see, when you mourn for sin and you realize this deep poverty of your soul because of sin and you mourn for that, when there is a deep contrition in your heart because you are, you're saddened by that sin and you mourn about it, when it leads you to repentance and faith, that's when your comfort is going to come. So what is that encouragement? What is the comfort that we receive? Well, first of all, it's a comfort about sin's penalty. 
You've been delivered from sin's penalty. If you know about sin, and if you understand the consequences of sin, and there is no deliverance, then of course there would be no comfort. If Christ can't deliver you from the penalty, then there's nothing but sadness forever. And so blessed are the sad, 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 because they will never be comforted. That doesn't make any sense. The penalty of sin is the fires of hell. And unless Christ is sufficient to stand between you and that penalty, between you and hell, if he is not sufficient to do that, then there's never going to be any joy. But thank God for this. Because of Christ, you have been accepted in the beloved. You have become righteous with God. And faith in Christ is the only way that you'll ever be righteous with God. So the bankrupt spirit, that one that is covered under that first beatitude, when he mourns over sin, that's when he has his sorrow turned into gladness. And that's because he knows that his sins have been pardoned through his faith. The penalty has been erased. Christ has taken that penalty for him. And so there's only one remedy for sin. There's only one way to get rid of it, and that's faith in Jesus Christ. And then when you have repented, your sorrow is turned into gladness. So there's comfort about sin's penalty when you really understand what Christ has done for you. And then there's comfort about sin's power. Without Christ, it's impossible for you to overcome sin. I mean, sin is always going to defeat an unbeliever. I mean, there is no self-power that can ever overcome sin's power. So poor in spirit is a recognition that you're helpless against sin's power. And when you realize how helpless that you are, that's what brings on the sorrow. When you understand, I can't do anything about this myself. There's nothing I can do. I mean, if you're going to weep about something, wouldn't that be what something to weep about? Weep because there is no deliverance from sin's power. Sin has you in its death row. You're in its grip. You can't get out of it. So comfort comes when you know what Paul said. He said, sin shall not have dominion over you. See, when you're in Satan's kingdom, you're in the kingdom of this world. You're, you're under Satan's dominion. You're under Satan's power. But when you trust in Christ, that power of sin is broken. Just like Charles Wesley wrote in his hymn, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. That's what Christ does. He breaks the chains of sin. He breaks the power of sin. He sets you free from the bondage of Satan. And then he gives you the power to live for God. Mourn for your sin, but then realize the comfort when you know that Christ is able to deliver from that power of sin. And then there's a third way in which we're comforted, and that's to be comforted about sin's presence. Every believer mourns because sin is still present in his body. And that's why Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And the answer to the question is, for all of us, Christ shall deliver us from this body of death. Christ is going to deliver us from sin because this body will die. The body goes into the grave. Our soul, our spirit is separated from the body. It goes on into heaven, and there we're released from our sins. But then the Bible also says there's coming a time when the body of the believer will be raised incorruptible. It will be made, fashioned into a body just like Jesus Christ, a glorified body. So the presence of sin, even in the body, is gone. 
Here's what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3. For our conversation, he means our life, is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it might be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul spoke about the appearing of Christ. He said, Jesus is coming back. And he said, wherefore, comfort one another with these words. So do you see how mourning can actually be turned into joy? Mourning becomes a blessing. You have to be sad before the joy comes. There's sorrow in knowing how helpless that you are. And so when you mourn for sin... When your deep poverty causes you to mourn for sin, that's when you receive the forgiveness of it. And there is no joy that surpasses this, the joy that knowing that you are free from sin's penalty, you are free from sin's power, and one day you will be finally free from sin's presence. Let me close with this thought today. Meditating on Scripture will make you mourn for sin. We have to be in God's Word. We have to study God's Word. Now, I don't want to leave this out. Where do you learn about sin and evil? Where do you learn about salvation? Where do you learn about eternity? The Word of God has the answers. I couldn't tell you anything I've told you today unless this was revealed to us in the Word. One commentator wrote this. He said, A deep doctrine of sin, a high doctrine of joy, and the two together produce this blessed, happy man who mourns, and who at the same time is comforted. The way to experience that, obviously, is to read the Scriptures, to study and meditate upon them, and to pray to God for His Spirit to reveal sin in us to ourselves, and then to reveal the Lord Jesus Christ in all of His fullness. You may not like it because I preach about sin today. You may not like it because... I'm trying to make you aware of what the Word of God says will truly make you happy. That's when you mourn about your sin, when you actually get concerned about it, when you think about it, what it's done to you, and what it does to God. You know, a preacher who stands before you and says, I don't want to preach about sin because I don't want people to be happy. I want people to be happy, so therefore I don't preach about sin. He has no clue what Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes because Jesus says you won't be happy until you know about sin, until you learn about sin, until you have repented of your sin. And this is why Jesus said, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you in the close of this service today. I hope that people have seen very clearly what sin does. Sin is a killer. Our transgressions against you are against a holy God who must judge sin. There's a penalty that goes with it. Lord, there's a time for your people and your house, Christians, to be concerned about the sin that's in their lives, to confess that sin and get rid of it so it doesn't eat us up, so it doesn't lead us into depression, so it doesn't rob us of our joy. We know that we have to repent of our sins and be drawn close to you. We must receive forgiveness of our sins before happiness will ever come. So I pray for some soul here today who may be struggling with this, things that are going on in their life, they can find no true happiness. And perhaps it's because they haven't begun to mourn about their sin, to realize their spiritual bankruptcy and that they haven't got that settled with you first of all. 
before they tackle any other problem that's in their life. This is the one that's the most serious. And when this is done, when it's taken care of, when you've forgiven people of their sins, that's when joy comes into their heart. Help them to receive this message today, Lord. May they understand that Jesus Christ does truly have the answers for our problems because he can take away the mourning and turn that sadness into joy. Blessing this invitation today, Lord. We ask you to work in people's hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.